Hey, it's Katie in Rome. If you get a moment, give us a good rating on iTunes if you like the show. And consider giving us a donation. There's a donate button at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. What little you can give helps the show keep going and stay free. Thanks. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is still on vacation, but I have invited in a guest co-host, my husband Derek. Hi, Derek. Hello. And he is not the only guest that we have today. We are also welcoming Peter to our, our crew. And Peter, why don't you tell us who you are? So my name is Peter Diedzik. I am here in Rome for one year on a Russell Berry Fellowship. Uh, it's an academic fellowship that sponsors students to learn more about interreligious dialogue from the perspective of the Catholic Church. Student, a recent graduate of DePaul University in Chicago with a bachelor's degree in religious studies, a lifelong resident of Chicago, and uh, I've been abroad for about two years now. Let's talk about how you ended up going abroad initially. When you got out of college, were you always expecting to grow abroad, or was this a big surprise? I've been interested in living abroad since I was about, about an early teenager, age of 13, 14. I, I remember spending a lot of time on Wikipedia looking at pictures of Russia, of South America. From a young age, I really had a desire to go abroad. The first time I went abroad was actually as a student at the University of Illinois, short-term trip to China. Uh, I went to Shanghai and to Hong Kong. So my first time abroad was actually as a student, and ever since that time, every opportunity I've had abroad has has been as a student or in some sort of academic focus. And so how have you managed to do it two years? Where where have you been, I guess, in those two years? That's the question I should ask first. I've been actually extremely lucky. Um, I, have, I have no other way to put it that I've been, uh, I've been able to manage a good string of of distinct opportunities that really have no relation to each other, but fit into my wider interests. I guess my long-term time abroad started when I went to Jordan for four months to study classical Arabic. After that, I um, I received a research grant from DePaul to go to India for about six, seven months to um, research a few things relating to the uh, Tibetan community up in the north of India. As a religious studies major, I was quite interested in uh, Tibetan Buddhism in in Westerners who were converting to Buddhism. Um, so I did a mix of things. I, I did a personal research project. I studied the Tibetan language for six months. I did a research internship with the Tibetan government in exile. As I was in India, I, I applied for the Russell Berry Fellowship in Rome, which I'm, I'm here in Rome now on that fellowship. I remember I was in Chicago and I, I saw it. I thought about applying for it, but I didn't have enough time because I was preparing to go to India. So as soon as I got to India, I spent a few days um, preparing an application to send in, and I sent it only to keep a window open. I, I had no plans after India. A few months later, I heard back saying I was accepted, so I had to change all my plans. I had to actually apply for my Italian visa in India, which was a very strange cultural experience. At the end of my six months in India, I also started to apply for a Fulbright grant. That was about a 13-month application process, and the whole time I've been in in Rome, I haven't heard a thing from the Fulbright. I, I was waiting on the, on the application this whole time, and I only heard back last month that I was accepted for a Fulbright to Morocco, so my journey will continue for another 12 to 15 months in, in Morocco. 
I'm curious to hear how you found all these opportunities. Well, first of all, you're about 24, is that right? Okay, when you said Wikipedia at 13, 23, 23. <laughs> Wikipedia at 13 made me think some of our listeners might not recognize how young you are. <laughs> I think that for me, I just assume that these things fall into people's laps sometime. And in fact, that's how it happened for me. A professor literally handed me the application for this fellowship. But you have gone way out of your way to actually carve things out for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about how, particularly with the India experience, how you made that happen? As an aspiring academic, as someone in a field like religious studies that has extremely sparse funding for travel, for conferences, et cetera, um, and coming from a family that isn't able to support all these adventures, I was always conscious from a freshman in high school that I really had to find a way to do this myself. And it was a struggle. It was a struggle for a long time because for my freshman and sophomore year in university, I um, I remember this great desire to go abroad, to do something unique, but I was never able to. I didn't have the time, didn't have the money. For my time in India, India was a particularly unique case because um, it was honestly by by hearsay. I was having coffee at the student cafe at DePaul and somehow I overheard someone saying that the liberal arts department at DePaul had a had some discretionary funding that they were looking to use to support students. I was planning to go to India to do this research, and I had just hoped, hoped that the money would come, or I'd use personal savings, or I didn't really have a plan. I, I just had a, had a dream, really. So once I heard that um, DePaul had some discretionary funding, I, I set an appointment. I spoke to the director, and she said, yes, so we'd like to support you. So they gave me funding for flights, for for living expenses, and um, I was able to live sparsely enough that what they gave me was um, enough to cover expenses in India. Who did you talk to on the Indian side to set up your experience there? Yeah, it's a pretty funny question. Um, I relied heavily on Google, to be to be honest. Um, I sent an email to the Department of Religion and Culture of the Central Tibetan Administration, um, just asking if they would be interested in some sort of intern for the summer. A few months later, I heard back saying I was. Oh, they'd love to have an intern. I received a formal a letter of welcoming, and I researched on Google the details about the Tibetan classes in India, and I, I planned my schedule that my work schedule would also coincide with my uh, classes in Tibetan. Yeah, it was all on Google, and the same thing. And, and, and this is honestly a habit that I developed as, as a child of the Internet age. Was uh, I would always just explore on the Internet. I remember as a senior in high school, just Googling for opportunities to travel. You know, how do I how do I get abroad? How do I travel? So one day, uh, I think in my sophomore year of college, I got into a crazy fit, and I, I decided to do it again. And I, I found out about this Russell Berry Fellowship. It seemed to fit well with my interests, um, which are quite rare as a religious studies major to find opportunities that are well-funded and fit with my interests, really products of, of sort of an internet escapade and, and trying to make it happen. So, thank God for Google. When I Googled around for international opportunities to go live abroad, so many of them are focused on students, and so few of them are focused on adults. Now that you're kind of in the transition, I mean, you're still a student, you're still studying at a university, but are there certain websites or resources that are would help an adult search for opportunities? Yeah, I think for me, I... I I sort of recognize a need in myself to start to build a resume, to start to craft sort of a narrative for myself. And, and thankfully, I've been able to travel abroad to a variety of places while also building 
an academic and a professional resume. I've been extremely lucky. Originally, when I was a child, I just had envisioned after college going overseas on Woofing, which is the worldwide um, organic farming website. I highly recommend Woofing as an opportunity to travel for adults. I recommend a couch surfing. Also, it's not so much a place to find opportunities, but as a way to make opportunities much more affordable. I find that um, the big inhibiting factor obligations and cost. I was lucky enough that after graduating college, I didn't have so many obligations. In terms of costs, I've I've been living quite frugally. I usually couch surf, stay in hostels. Um, I don't eat at fancy restaurants. So in terms of finding opportunities, I think that if you're able to cut down on those on those two factors, which are obligations and, and costs, then um, it's, it's not so scary. And you can really craft your own path in terms of specific resources, I can't think of anything. I've been so specific with my student-driven path that I haven't thought about how this might look if I'm 30 or 40. But I would hope that at that time could integrate something like woofing or or even an, even unexperience with a potential spouse or potential children, finding something that isn't only about my interests but something that, that can sort of span interests. So does that mean that you're planning on keeping this going for as long as you can, staying overseas? I don't envision traveling for my whole life. The more that I've been away from home, the more I realize how, how attractive it is to have a home base, to have an apartment, to have a place where you can have a library, you can have friends over, you can host people. I think a particular thing I have regretted but I hope to fix later in life is um, I've received so much hospitality around the world in all these countries. I've 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 received so much help, so much so much welcoming, so much... A grace from other people, and um, I just have not had the chance to repay that because I, I don't have a home to offer. So I don't plan to continue this lifestyle forever. Even if I had the funding and the resources, I don't think it would be attractive for 30, 40 years. But for now, I'm, I'm trying to enjoy my time in, in Rome, in Europe, and transitioning to a next major phase, which is uh, a year and a half in, in North Africa. One thing I think a lot of people would find pretty intimidating is this idea of switching gears while overseas, coming up with a new plan and executing it when you're not in your home base. It's one thing to you know return home and have a few months to figure things out and then go someplace else, but it sounds like two or three times now you've managed to switch gears. I can't even imagine combining the Italian and Indian bureaucracies as you did to try and get your Italian visa. Can you talk about how how different it is to try and get through all of that bureaucratic stuff and planning these new adventures from overseas rather than from home? Well, if I can be honest, it's actually been one of the worst uh, aspects of all this. Um, it has been nice to be able to stay abroad consistently. It's been great, and I'm I'm happy that it, it has worked out this way. But um, the planning abroad has certainly been a negative thing on a number of aspects, uh, particularly um, it detracts from being present in the place where you are. I have a distinct memories of my final month in India where I was trying to finish up the Fulbright application. And um, it was just a very stressful time. Uh, my internet access was not so stable, so I would go to cafes in the monsoon. Uh, so it was just a very stressful situation. But I knew that if I didn't apply after Rome, I wouldn't really have a plan. And it would be much more difficult to apply for Fulbright at a later date. Same thing, as soon as I got to India, I applied for the Russell Berry Fellowship. So I also have distinct memories of going to internet cafes to try to print out hundreds of sheets of paper to submit. So I don't recommend it because it's not so stable. It causes a lot of stress. It certainly distracts from your experience. 
always living in the future and never in, in the present in a very obvious and deep way, which I think is not so healthy. It's always a balance. I, I would certainly say that my journey is not normative. I went straight to Italy from India without spending any time back home. So I was going through a few phases of uh, culture shock and of a culture adaptation. So you now I think in that process, a lot is missed in terms of the you know, other piece of coming home, the piece of leaving home to go to a new place again. So yeah, it's certainly been a very challenging and, and not the best aspect of, of my particular journey. So, What was that like, India into Italy, as far as culturally, what was the hardest shift for you to make? Well, the hardest shift, I guess I'll start with the easiest shift, and that is um, the bureaucracies are the same. It, in terms of working with any official, it's a very slow, under-the-table, sort of wishy-washy process. Things could happen, things could not happen. Honestly, I think my time in India actually prepared me to face the Italian bureaucracy in terms of applying for uh, for residency I'm in Italy. I feel that my time in India really prepared me to handle it in a much more calm way than if I had come straight from the U.S. where things work um, in, a, in a much more organized way. The hardest thing of transition, I think certainly the price and the cost factor because I had gotten used to living on quite a tight budget. I like to share the statistic that the amount I pay to live in in Italy for one month, I could stay in India for three years. It was very easy in India to eat out at restaurants, to go to watch a movie, or take a trip uh, on the bus. It wasn't so expensive. Once I got to Italy, the prices jumped exponentially, so I really had to plan more about eating at home more, trying to find simpler pleasures while also enjoying the city, and trying to plan side trips. I think I think a big mark of my of my journey is that every place I go, I try to plan some sort of a side excursion so that I don't um, I don't only spend time in the city or in the academic sense, but that I get a sense to see more of the country or the place where I am. Would you consider yourself an expat? Oh, that's a great question. That's really hard to answer. Um, I don't think I can consider myself an expat because I haven't stayed in a singular foreign country for enough time to call another country home. I'm really in sort of an ephemeral place because I haven't really called the U.S. home for about two years, but I, I don't have another country to call home. I, I have a few homes now, but I don't think I can properly call myself an, an expat yet because if I were to get in trouble, I'd go back to the U.S. I don't have anywhere else to go. One thing I've wondered in all that you're switching around through these years and, and now you're about to head to Morocco is what is it like having to make friends over and over and over again and then say goodbye to people and start again? Well, that's actually something I've been thinking about recently because um, I've had to do it a number of times. Yeah, in, in Jordan, in India, in, in Rome, I've, I've, I've been extremely lucky because in every place I've, I've been able to develop a certain a community. In Jordan, I, I had the support of the school and I actually traveled with a friend from a university, so I had a built-in community, but I, I was also able to maintain um, another group of, of outside friends. So I consider that the fortune that I was at um, at a Western-based institution, a Western-based Arabic institution in Jordan where most of the students were from uh, the US or Europe or Australia, it was much easier to make a, a connection. In India, I, I actually got quite lucky because um, one of my big fears was was this problem. How am I going to make friends? How am I going to how am I going to do anything? Yeah, you know, and I, f- I find that it all worked out. Um, the first month in India, I lived in a monastery, Tibetan Buddhist monastery. It was quite lonely 
it would have been quite lonely had I stayed there the whole time. But I had a Russian, an old Russian woman who was who was my neighbor. And even though there was a huge language gap, she spoke no English, I spoke no Russian. We were able to have tea together and watch the sunset and watch the birds. So it was nice. And then I eventually met a Tibetan man who wanted a roommate, an English roommate to ex- exchange language practice. I practiced my Tibetan. He practices his English. So. I ended up living with a Tibetan man and his two nephews for the rest of my time, and and that was a, a built-in community right there. I, I felt immediately at home. I considered that really just luck and, and good fortune that I was able to build that. I imagine, in retrospect, it could have been a very lonely experience. In Rome, I I had the built-in structures of a fellowship, and I'm currently living at the Lay Center here in Rome, which is a living community for lay students at the Vatican schools. So I actually had two built-in communities, which helped me make friends right from the start. It wasn't so intimidating. Uh, for Morocco, I'm not so sure what's going to happen, because um, if I do have my Fulbright a cohort, I'll be with uh, nine other students from the U.S. who are going to Morocco. But um, I'm part of my task is to be with the local community, so I... It's another imperative for me to not spend time with uh, Westerners, to not spend time with my fellow Fulbrighters, but to um, uh, to really make friends in the local community. I'm nervous, I won't lie. I mean, it could be a very good experience. It could be a very bad experience. I, I'm only going based off the fact that the past three experiences I've had have been quite good. So I can only hope for the best, only hope that my past experiences will inform certain strategies about how to meet people, uh, not be so afraid, and not be afraid to walk into a strange cafe in the middle of the night. Are you a particularly bold person? I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I think my track record will make people think I'm bold. I've done things that are bold to certain people, like staying with strangers in strange places, <laughs> um, hitchhiking in foreign countries, even living in India for anything more than a two-week trip to see the Taj Mahal, which might also be considered bold. Um, but I I would say I'm I'm an easily nervous person. I'm anxious, and I think that in many ways, I hold back in many ways. But I do have to say that in in reflection, a, a lot of the choices I make when I travel are are quite bold. I won't say I'm a bold person, but by chance I've made bold choices. <laughs> Does it help being abroad, learning to overcome shyness? Hmm. I, I think so. I think it's it's really helped me. Um, I have no choice in a foreign country but to step outside of the box and to engage strangers, to uh, to fend for myself in terms of you know trying to find a place on a bus or on an Indian train or at the Italian visa office. Um, you really have to learn how to navigate a language barriers, a cultural barriers, notions of ageism and respect. In many ways, it, it has helped me overcome elements of my shyness. I will still say that I'm, uh, in many ways, a shy person, particularly because as a, as a child, I stuttered. So I think ever since I was, if I was young, I've, I've been ingrained with a sense of, of being shy as a norm. But uh, I, think, I think my time abroad has certainly accelerated the process of um, stepping outside of my shell. What would you say to a 19-year-old college student who desperately wants to find an opportunity to go abroad, but they go down to their foreign exchange office at the college, leaf through all the little brochures, and just nothing seems right? What, what advice would you give that person? That's a very hard question to answer, particularly because I've been in that position as a college freshman who's in a very unpopular field of study, very underfunded. It just seems that a lot of the study abroad programs are not are not so helpful. 
um, or are too general to speak to your deep uh, desires. I think an important thing is to not be afraid to to ask questions, not be afraid to ask for help from professors, from family, particularly with regards to funding. Again, I can't emphasize enough that for a college student, the biggest barrier to spending a summer or a week or a winter break abroad is um is funding. Don't be afraid to uh, to ask around for funding from professors, from from family members, from from organizations you've worked for or volunteered for. As an example, when I was in, in high school, I worked uh, for Walmart for some years. I had taken a two-week trip to Israel-Palestine to study the conflict there, and um, I was not afraid to go up to my manager uh, to ask him if, if there's any funding available. Uh, the answer was no, but it doesn't hurt to ask because a lot of the other people I thought would say no. I asked, and they were able to offer $100 up to $300 all the way up to $1,000. So um, I really encourage people to, um, if they don't find an opportunity in any of the official programmings, to um, uh, to carve your own path. It's it's not something that you can do overnight or in a year. I had started planning for India when I was a sophomore, so it took a year of planning, a year of thought, a year of finding money to do that. So um, it's extremely easy, particularly as, as someone who is that young, who has uh, the whole college experience to face, uh, but who wants to go see the world. Um, that's a very intimidating place to be, but I think that if you um, if you try to find a lot of doors, I'm sure you'll find some keys in your family, friends, contacts. But other than that, I, I, I fully sympathize with people in that position. So, All right, Peter. Well, I think that'll do it for now. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> thank you so much for agreeing to come in and talk to us. Oh, no. Thank you both for having me. It was great. And thank you, Derek, for sitting in for Tiffany. Um, my quieter co-host, Derek, my <laughs> husband. Thank you. My pleasure. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Join us again. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.